Visions Now. Visions Now. Visions Now. Visions Now is resilience. Visions Now is community. It is enlightenment and it's the promising future that we're all working towards. It's Black History Month. Welcome back to another episode of Visions Now. You are currently listening to our Black History Month podcast extravaganza. Four episodes, that's one episode a week, featuring all Black voices on all Black topics. Visions Inc. does not take Black History Month lightly. Diversity, equity, and inclusion work is about dismantling systems of oppression. So we're taking this moment to acknowledge the work of our ancestors ground ourselves in the present and orient ourselves to the future in order to figure out where we need to go in this fight for racial equity. You can follow us on social media. We've got some great Black History Month content going up on Instagram. And you can check us out at visions-inc.org for all your diversity, equity, and inclusion needs. Please enjoy this Black History Month podcast journey can subscribe to Visions Now on all podcast listening platforms. Today's episode is dedicated to every single Black child who is pursuing their education, to Black teachers, and to all teachers, Black or otherwise, who are daring to speak the truth in classrooms across this nation while the powers that be are trying to erase Black history. Thank you. I come from a long line of Black educators. My grandfather, Roscoe A. Batts, was the first Black principal in the desegregated schools in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. I am grateful to the Little Rock Nine, Ruby Bridges, and the Brown vs. Board of Education case for desegregating America's public schools and helping Black children everywhere have access to proper education. Let's keep fighting to maintain systems that allow us to be our very best. And today, I got to sit down with Aisha Wilson. Aisha, among other things, is a school committee member for the Cambridge Public School System. So my name is Aisha Wilson, and I am a woman who has many hats. Um, A few are just I am the senior teacher counselor for the Cambridge Housing Authority. We have a program, an after-school program called the Workforce, and um, where we work with our residents that are in grades. Now we have opened our program to be from sixth grade through high school and even four years post-graduation. I specifically work with kids who are um, eighth through 12th graders who are our residents. And I've been doing this since 2015. And I was also a kid in this program because I grew up in Cambridge Public Housing. I'm also a second term elected Cambridge School Committee member, which is exciting (laughs) to be serving in the city that raised me. Um, I'm also the secretary of the NAACP, the Cambridge branch. I am on the board of directors for the YWCA here in Cambridge. And um, I'm also a live-in resident for um, adults who are on the spectrum. So I work with adults who have intellectual disabilities and I also live with them. um, so it's a really rewarding experience across many, um, as well as being like members of different boards as well, like the 
um, Greater Boston Association of Black Social Workers and the um, the Black, Black Cladalists of Massachusetts. So many hats that I <laughs> wear, um, but really happy to be engaged and involved, especially in my community and giving back. I identify as a Black woman, um, Jamaican-American woman who grew up in, in a single-parent household. Um, and, and I think that those identities really make and shape who I am, especially growing up in low-income housing, um, but growing up in a very privileged community like Cambridge, um, which you know many would say are the tales of two cities with the haves and the have-nots. So really being a city that you know, growing up in public housing, I was very underrepresented or, up, you know, had very little privilege and in, um, in resources. But being in a city like Cambridge that is pretty well resourced and has many opportunities, um, but thinking about who has access to those opportunities is really telling. So I think my identity as woman, as Black, African-American or Caribbean-American woman, but growing up in single parent household and growing up in the projects, um, really makes and shapes my everyday. Um, I'm a social worker. I'm an educator. And um, yeah, I'm a friend, an aunt, a godmother, <laughs> all those things as well that really makes and shapes who I am. As a multifaceted educator and a member of the Cambridge School Committee, what would you say are the major concerns for Black students and their families today? Yeah, really great question. I think our main concern really stems around academic excellence um, and thinking about academic excellence for all. Um, and when we kind of throw that word out there for all, we know we mean like inclusive of our Black, those who are most marginalized and most oppressed. So Black and Brown communities, as well as those who have specific learning needs. Um, and the sadness for why we have to push so hard on academic excellence for all is because one reporting tool that we utilize, which is the MCAST, um, really shows that African-American children by third grade, uh, only about 40%, 44% of our Black African-American children are reading proficiently or advanced compared to about 77 to 80% of their white and Asian counterparts. Um, and so this number is super telling of what our community is based on and, and how we have to do so much work to improve these numbers. Where does you know, academic equity come into place? How do we make sure that um, our black children, our brown children um, and children with learning needs have the skills and the education and tools that they need in order to excel academically um, in our city? And we also understand that this number isn't just to Cambridge, right? Like we see these numbers across our state. We see these numbers across our country. And the real question as a school committee member is, are we capable of educating our black and brown children and children with learning disabilities at the same rate that we are our white and Asian peers? What are the resources and tools that white and Asian students have that black and brown children don't have? Um, and how do we address those, address and meet those needs? What are the major concerns of teachers who are educating Black students? Yeah, I think teaching in this climate, anyone who is an educator, hats off to you. Because during this pandemic, um, it's been trying. I mean, it's been trying on anybody and everybody. But I think our educators have experienced really the 
the shittiest end of the stick, I think, in terms of the care that they needed for themselves and the care that they needed in order to support their their young people and their families. Um, because remote learning really wasn't just I'm teaching a young person who's on the other screen. If they were even on the other screen, it could just be a black box um, while they're in their home. And, and what does that mean to be in their home and be present in their spaces and, and being an educator and seeing everything that's going on. So if you're, if you have a young person who has multiple siblings and, you know, maybe they do live in a single parent house, you know, a, a, a home, which may not be conducive to every child having their own room or every child having their own space, you may hear another child studying um, in the background or on their own Zoom call doing their um, virtual learning. You may hear a parent on their call doing their um, their work in the background. So you may hear so many different things. And I think as educators, they had to navigate that. They had to be empathetic. They had to be super flexible. Um, and, and I think it also took a lot of just patience, patience to the fact that we're all in this pandemic together. And yet we have to figure out how to navigate this at the same time. So, you know, professional development was key. How do we transition from being in person to being online? There was a lot of professional development around technology skills and knowing that we have many educators who are not tech savvy um, and, and doesn't even have to do with age. Right. So even if we want to look at ageism or whatever, Age plays no role in this. Like, I think I'm pretty young and tech savvy. I had to go to do a few trainings to make sure I knew how to properly use Zoom or Google Meets or whatever. Um, and, and I think trying to, once we got into that hybrid model of you can have young people in front of you in person and young people at home online, how are educators making sure that they're giving all of their scholars the space that they need and that, that time that they need while trying to multitask two different environments, online learning and in-person learning at the same time. So, you know, I think our educators tackled a lot. They learned a lot. Um, but I also think, you know, with young people who had specific learning needs, it really grew to another level of professional development that was needed. And that's really around, you know, when we look, think about and talk about meeting the needs of all when you have a classroom of 24 and, you know, whether it's half of your class or a quarter of your class are in need of having, you know, high specific needs and challenges, how do you meet that in this in this pandemic world um, and make sure that you're able to do that um, in the best light and also maintain your self-care at the same time, which is critically important. So I think our educators had so much on their plates and, and, you know, as many, as often as I can, I'm giving props to our educators because they had to tackle a lot during this time. Absolutely. So one of the other big things that educators are tackling right now is this conversation of, about critical race theory in schools. And I put that in quotes because I think a lot of what they're calling critical race theory probably isn't even critical race theory. That's just my opinion. Um, so I just got this, this little bit of information from um, Education Week, which says 37 states have introduced bills or taken steps that would restrict teaching critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism and sexism. Um, 14 states have imposed these bans and restrictions either through legislation or other avenues. 
I'm curious about your opinion on this. How do you think banning books or curriculum about race and critical race theory impacts students? I think in terms of teaching our history, it's critically important that we're teaching our real history and teaching our history as it pertains to all cultures, races, and communities. I think it's not explicit on we're going to shy away from one race in order to appease another race, right? I think it's really important that we're doing this in a, you know, all means all kind of aspect of like, this is our history, American history. Um, As we think, as we are in Black History Month and we're talking about, you know, Black history is American history, that is real. And that is so true. And we need to make sure that we're putting a lens and a focus on, um, on speaking the truth and not hiding or shying away from um, what we're what we're teaching our our babies, you know, because the truth is going to come out. and And I think what makes for the false narrative is when our young people grow up in a world that makes them feel um, very just not heard, not seen, or not valued in the country in which they're in. Um, the community in which they're in. I apologize for the background noise. Um, but, you know, I think in our community, it's, it's important that we're teaching and celebrating, you know, yes, we've been oppressed in a, in a, in a multitude of ways, but where can we celebrate and our overcome, you know, the things that we have overcome and the things that we have been able to be empowered by? Because as you know, especially as Black people, Black and Brown people, we're resilient. And that's one thing that we need to celebrate is how we have overcome so much in our country, um, our history. We have overcome so much, and yet we still stand, and yet we still rise. We still do, right? Um, I think when many talk about kind of where we have gone and the possibilities of where we would like to see ourselves, you know, it's like history is repeating itself in a very sad way. You know, you think about Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Junior and and all that he fought for and Malcolm X and all that he fought fought for and how we're still fighting for those same things today, right? And so the question really really has to be you know brought up around h- how do we move the needle and how do we move the needle so that fifty years from today we're not still having this same conversation around what needs to be erased from our history books what shouldn't be shared, and what should be shared. I think we need to keep it real. I think the educators who are doing that are doing a wonderful job. Um, You know, as far as I'm concerned, here in Cambridge, we're not talking about, we're talking about how to bring more equitable and anti-racist books into our schools. Um, What does that look like for our libraries? How do we go through all of our curriculum and make sure that curriculum is based with an anti-racist lens? Um, we adopted a motion that I um, and, a, um, and one of my colleagues um, brought to the committee. It got adopted unanimously that we will become an anti-racist district, that we will prioritize um, uh, racial equity in our school district. And what does that mean and look like? So as we build on this work in a city like Cambridge particularly, but I think across our state, we have to acknowledge um, and, and, and celebrate one, the land that we're on, which that's, you know, stolen land. We got to acknowledge that. And we have to acknowledge the work that many members of our community have done in order to get us to where we are. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of 
big buckets when we talk about whether it's critical race theory or becoming an anti-racist district or looking at education through an anti-racist lens that it encompasses so many things. Um, And it's not many things that we can't do at once. We just have to look at how do we prioritize and tackle the needs. So when we're having the conversations about books and curriculum and, and hiring of educators and different things of those platforms, like we need to make sure that we're doing a lot of this at the same time because because um, that's the only way that we're going to shift and dismantle racism in our um, and especially in our educational system. I totally agree with you. I think what I've found out just in in my little bit of research, which was supported by Tori, shout out to Tori Parham. Um, we are currently almost experiencing like a, a witch hunt nationally where school systems are targeting or not necessarily school systems, but policymakers are targeting educators who who are teaching theory or teaching um, curriculums that are related to race at all. Like this idea that if you um, teach about Ruby Bridges, for instance, this is one of the books that they're trying to ban in Tennessee. Ruby Bridges goes to school. I remember this book um, from when I was in middle school and it basically talks about this little girl on her first day of a desegregated public school being harassed by white folks who want segregation. Um, And right now the state of Tennessee wants to ban the book because there's no like redemption for those white people in that story. They were essentially racist. And it's a story, it's a true story about a little girl experiencing racism. And the idea that policymakers um, are pushing forward is that books like this are divisive and that they don't support um, like racial healing or racial equity. I'm curious about what you think the effect of teaching about racism in this very real way, what is, how does that impact students, whether they're white, Asian, Black, how does that impact students? Yeah, I think, you know, the story of Ruby Bridges, the Brown versus Board of Education, I mean, when we think about the history of um, integrating schools, it's not, it's a sad story across the board. And what what makes it, you know, a celebratory event is that Again, for Black people, we didn't shy away from the harm that was placed upon us from going into schools. You know, Ruby Bridges, she still went to school and she held her head up high going to school as she was being threatened and basically tormented and, you know, things thrown at her on a regular basis, right? Um, And so even when you think about the Arkansas Nine, you know, so there's just so many stories about Black people that had to experience such... um, heartache just to go get a proper education. And, and, and to think that to get a proper education, one, you had to go into a white school in order to get it because in our black school, you know, schools that were closer to the inner city, we didn't have those excellence of, you know, education that goes back to, listen, we're not here to, um, what's the thing? Sugarcoat what, what individuals had to experience, nor are we here to kind of Um, tokenized, but we're here to just talk the truth. And I'm sorry if the truth makes anybody feel less than, because that's not the intent. The intent is to make sure that we are speaking the realness about what individuals, and some of whom are still alive, (laughs) to say, this is what was experienced, this is what we learned, and this is how we made a public school system better. Um, We have a rising eighth grade program, and I'll be very quick on it. And and we teach them about the history of education so that as they go into eighth grade and beyond, 
they feel more celebrated. They feel more empowered. They feel encouraged to be like, wow, if my ancestors had to go through so much to get the education that they wanted, what am I doing? <laughs> like, how am I encouraged by their stories to make sure I'm giving my all for the education I am now getting, right? And so we do that very intentionally um, where we talk about Ruby Bridges and the Board of Education. And when, then we bring it a little more present day to young people knowing about who's on the school committee here in Cambridge, who's on the city council, who's making laws that impacts their day to day, um, which I don't think so many of our young people know who our local electives are, right? And so it goes back to those spaces as well. And, and just really touching on school should be a safe place for learning and growing um, and, and, you know, obviously making new friends and all that kind of stuff, but we got to teach the real history of, um, and what's real and we can't sugarcoat the history and what we have experienced, um, because that's only going to make us stronger at, globally, um, as a society. That's my opinion. Yes. Thank you. I really love what you said about the civic engagement, like education piece. I've been talking a lot with people about how, I did not learn the things that I needed to know about how to participate in society until this year. Like I'm in the process of trying to study on my own. Who do I need to call when there's an issue with someone trying to build a building in my neighborhood that doesn't fit the zoning? I didn't even know what zoning was, you know? So all of that stuff, being able to understand how to engage in, um, in your community on that level is so important. I can't tell you how many young people say that they hate school. And can't stand school. And, and to me, when I ask them why, it's because they don't feel as though they belong. They don't feel like they matter. They don't feel connected. And it breaks my heart because I never had that experience going to school. I love school. Um, I loved learning. You know, even when I got my first C in seventh grade, which I'm still bitter about, as you can tell. <laughs> um, I think it has to do with a lot of the lack of inclu um, inclusivity. It also has to do with the lack of educators who look like our kids. I mean, I think in Cambridge specifically, you know, we have a 60 percent uh, students of color population with less than a 30 percent educators of color population. So um, I think that's very telling. You know, there are some schools that have higher percentage rates, but across our district as a whole, it's only 30%. Um, so we have a lot of work to do in order to bring those numbers up. We have a lot of work to do in around empowering. You know, I was just talking to a young person last week who was like, I have a goal of being, you know, going to criminal justice or going into education. And I said, girl, how can I get you into education? Please do education. And I want you to come back as a paraprofessional. I want you to, you know, Think about those pathways. And that's another goal that I'm working on is the pathways to um, certified teaching. I mean, we already have a beautiful pathway here in, in Cambridge, but thinking about from high school pathways to education um, so that we're working with our kids and, and able to meet those needs and, and really able to create the love and joy of education and kind of giving and teaching um, back. Thank you for joining us, Aisha. If you want to stay in touch with Aisha, you can find her at Vote Aisha on all platforms and also go to voteaisha.org. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it, subscribe, find us on Instagram at visions-inc.org 
and stay tuned. We have another Black History Month episode coming next week.